I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the last two verses of this chapter. They are well-known verses. In fact, when I was going over this sermon last night with uh, our children, I said, do you guys know this, this uh, Scripture passage? And they said, no. And they started quoting some. It's not quite right. But after about the first three words or so, Carissa, I'm not sure if Sarah did, but Carissa's got this verse in Awana and she has got it nailed down and she knows what these verses say. They are common verses, they're well-known verses, and yet there are some nuggets here for us this morning. It reads thus, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You know, it's so short, I want to read again. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Well, if you've been around Rock Valley Bible Church for any time, you know that we're planning to preach through the whole Bible next year. And in fact, if you take out now your, your bulletin, you will find in there a schedule. It's a Bible reading schedule that we will follow through this year. And we encourage each and every one of you to take this Bible reading schedule and to put it in your Bible. You know, I would encourage you to have one sheet of paper in your Bible this year. I find oftentimes that those whose Bibles are cluttered with um, bulletins and all this kind of stuff, oftentimes it's difficult to read through all that stuff. I just encourage you to have one piece of paper in your Bible, maybe a prayer sheet. You can put that in there too if you have one. Put it in there and just follow along and read with us through the Bible this next year in 2006. For those of you in your congregation who are too young to read, or maybe the Bible is too big, I mean, how many of those do we have in our families? Quite a few of those types of children. I encourage you parents to read the Bible out loud to them. I encourage you to do that. And I say, don't ever, ever underestimate the profitability of that in the life of yourself, the life of your family, and the life of your children they will pick up more than you would ever imagine that they pick up. Even Stephanie, my daughter who's two years old, likes to sit and listen to Dad read. Hannah, who's six years old, is picking up an amazing amount. So we think that we read through the Scriptures each day and talk to her about that. So I would encourage you to do that. And every Sunday morning, our sermon is going to be based upon the text which was read the previous week. So whatever text is there, that's what we're going to focus our sermon on this morning, uh, in the mornings. In flocks, we're going to take whatever was preached upon and really enforce that. It might be response and application to what was preached on Sunday. It might be supplementing things that will be skipped and missed over, only lightly treated for the sake of time. But that's going to be flocks. That's going to be church. Our church is this paper for this next year. And I've had some people say, come up to me and say, Steve, do you think you really can do that? 
You think you really get through the whole Bible? And I say, well, yep, we've got this schedule and uh, we're going to stay to this schedule. No part twos of the message next week. It's going to be this schedule. And so, for instance, if you look on January 1st, the reading there is Genesis 1 through 3. On January 1st, that's going to be our text. I'm going to preach that morning about God's creation. I'm going to teach about the fall and how men fell and their sin. The punishment and the curse that was upon them. And yet, God's hope even in the midst of that time. I'm going to preach on that. And then if you look, January 1st and the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th goes from Genesis 4 through Genesis 27. If you know anything about the book of Genesis, you know that's covering things about the flood and the Tower of Babel and then a lot about Abraham. I'll, I'll probably touch on the flood, you know, maybe a little bit of the Tower of Babel, but then speak a lot about Abraham. It's going to be focused upon Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, where God of all the people on the earth chooses to bless Abraham. Why? There's no reason why. It's a great picture of election. He just Of anybody, he says, Abraham... I'm choosing you. Abraham certainly wasn't a righteous man. He believed. It was accounted to him as righteous, but he did some unrighteous things. But in that, Genesis 12, verse 3, the gospel was preached because in you would be a blessing to the whole world. In you, all the families of the earth should be blessed. So we'll talk about that. And then the next week goes from Genesis 28 through Genesis 48. I'm probably going to bring in the last two chapters of Genesis. If you know about Genesis, it talks about Isaac a little bit, but a lot about Jacob and a lot about Joseph. I'm going to focus that time upon Joseph and see how God, through just His incredible sovereignty, uses difficult circumstances to save His chosen people. Right? His brothers meant evil against Joseph, but God meant it for good. And we'll go through week by week by week. And I can't say, okay, well, we're going to spend another week on Joseph. We can't. We're just going to press on. And the next week after that, we're going to learn about the Passover and the Exodus and the mighty power of God. And then we're going to learn about the law at the end of Exodus 20. And then we're going to learn about the Leviticus and the, the sacrificial system. Then we're going to see the people of Israel wander for many, many years and just learn from their rebellion. And each week we'll just go through the Bible time and time again. And, and I've also been asked about this whole plan people said, well, aren't we as a church about going through the Bible verse by verse? Is Rock Valley Bible Church now going in a different direction? And I simply say this, that no, we are a church that normally preaches verse by verse, phrase by phrase through books of the Bible. We've established that from the beginning. We're just a small Bible study. Five families. We began in 1 Timothy and went right through that whole book. And as we uh, continued on, we started Sunday night services. We started... 1 Thessalonians, we went right through there, first, verse by verse, phrase by phrase. We went through Matthew this past four years. <clears throat> and um, our plan in 2007 is just the same. We'll pick a book up in 2007 and probably just go through, like we have Matthew and 1 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy. Though it's just for this year, we're going to take a different approach. And I want you, one of the things I want you to realize is that... A, that a verse-by-verse verse teaching through the Bible, though its benefits are many, and though I'm convinced of it, it does have some limitations, and you need to realize those limitations. For instance, I did the math this week and figured that if we continue to preach through the Bible at the same rate of speed that we went through Matthew, it'll take us 135 years to get through the whole Bible. In other words, we'll never get to touch on many portions of Scripture 
should we continue on the rate we did at Matthew? It just can't be done. But preaching through the Bible this next year in 2006 is going to be at least an attempt to look at the big picture and hit some passages that we might miss should we just go down in different books of the Bible. And one of the things I want you to be convinced of and expressed is that you can have expository preaching that isn't necessarily verse by verse, phrase by phrase. I mean, it depends upon the size of the narrative. Like, for instance, even there was one point in Matthew chapter 14, I preached three sermons through a whole chapter of the Bible. And there are some times, particularly in the narrative sections of Scripture, <clears throat> that call us to go faster, like the story of Joseph. I mean, it's one story. Genesis 37 and Genesis 50, and it kind of screams out and says, you know what, do the whole thing so you can see the, the whole scope in a single message. And you can certainly break it up, but it's kind of difficult. It's just kind of the whole thing. That's what it's about. And so, you can be expositional when you're preaching and take larger chunks of Scripture. And that's what we're going to try to do this next year. Is take larger chunks of Scripture, though we will focus specifically on specific verses which help sum up everything. So, why preach through the Bible? I want to give you three answers that come from this text, verses 16 and 17. Why preach through the whole Bible? Here it is. The whole Bible is inspired... Look at verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now think about this. When Paul refers to the Scripture in this verse, he's referring to the Scripture of his day. And the Scripture of his day is what? It's the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. Paul wrote that all Scripture was inspired. He's talking about the Pentateuch. Books like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. He's talking about the historical books like First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. He's talking about the poetry sections of Scripture like Psalms and Proverbs. He's talking about the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Daniel and Amos. Those are the Scriptures that are in his mind when he thinks about all Scripture is inspired by God. Maybe, perhaps, Paul had in mind some of the Gospel accounts. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, he refers to the words of Jesus as Scripture. Maybe he's talking about those. Maybe the book of Acts. He was a good friend with Luke. Maybe he knew about Luke's sequel to his Gospel. <clears throat> Think about that Scripture. We can't be sure. But we know he's talking about the Old Testament. And we know certain parts of the New Testament is not even... He's writing the New Testament at this point. Some of the New Testament even hasn't been written yet. He's talking about the Scripture of the Old Testament. Though by extension, certainly we believe that this covers all of the Scripture by principle, but specifically had his mind upon the Old Testament. And to be honest with you, up to this point in the life of Rock Valley Bible Church, we've neglected much of the Old Testament. I did some more math this week. And I searched to see how many of our Sunday morning sermons were based on the Old Testament. You know what I found? 10% of our sermons are based on the Old Testament. And many of those by guest preachers. So we've been focusing so much on, on Matthew, on First Thessalonians. We've done that. And teaching through the whole Bible is going to help us to at least bring some type of biblical balance and emphasis. It won't be until October till we get to the New Testament. That'll be nine months. A lot of Old Testament, right? Help bring a balance back. Help us to see the Old Testament portions that we have neglected for some while. And that's not to say we won't mention or look at the New Testament. Right? Because you need to have the New Testament because the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. 
And there are times when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. And we're in the Old Testament and it quotes it in the New Testament. Certainly we'll go there and we'll show how things are fulfilled in the New Testament and how they apply. In fact, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, that the Scriptures of the Old Testament speak of Him. And I trust as we go through the Old Testament, you'll be amazed at how often they are foreshadowing and anticipating Christ to come. And we'll find in the Old Testament plenty of opportunities to land in the New Testament, right? But it's a landing, right? We'll take off from the New Testament come October. So it'll help us to balance things in the Old Testament. And these things will help us keep in mind that all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, notice carefully what Paul wrote. He said, all Scripture is inspired. He didn't say the whole Bible is inspiring. Do you know the difference? There's a difference, right? We find many stories to be inspiring, like like the boy who grew up in a crime-infested ghetto but made it big in professional athletics and then went back and devoted his time and efforts and resources and monies to developing those boys who were in the same situation he was in. We find that inspiring. We find the story of the, the blind woman who graduates from law school and, and comes back as to be mayor of her hometown to be inspiring. We find certain poems or musical numbers or, or TV shows or movies, right, which jerk our emotions and cause our eyes to tear. Those are inspiring. But Paul didn't say the Bible's inspiring. Now, I'm not denying that the Bible might do that for you. There might be some times in which you look in the Scriptures. I mean, I, I can't help every time I read Joseph, right, to get this, this feeling in my heart, right, to think that God used all of this. And when He revealed Himself to His brothers, right, He was just crying and it was a time of, of great joy. There are certainly some tear-jerking moments in the Bible, certainly some inspiring moments in the Bible. But there are some who read the Bible like a little um, inspirational book like trying to get their, their help and their happiness from the Bible so as to face another day in this world. But that's not what Paul said. He said it's inspired by God. Literally, the Scriptures are breathed out by God. Some of your translations might say that. The Scriptures, all Scriptures, breathed out by God. That is, the words of Scripture are divinely produced. The words of Scripture were in the mind of God long before they ever found place in the human writing and pen and ink on paper. One of the things we believe at Rock Valley Bible Church is the plenary inspiration of the Scriptures. That is, all the Scriptures are inspired by God and they are all equally inspired. Right? The writings in Genesis, the writings in Leviticus, the writings in 2 Kings are just as expired, inspired as 2 Timothy 3.16, just as inspired as John 3.16, just as inspired as 2 Corinthians 5.21. The plenary inspiration of the Scripture. No portion is more inspired than another. And they all are worthy of our attention and our study. Right? The whole Scripture will help us to do that. You might ask, well, how did God inspire these writers? First, Second Peter chapter 1 explains as best as any. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20-21, through 21, Peter says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Right? The picture we have here in Peter is that men were writing, but the Holy Spirit was moving. And so, as the Holy Spirit moved, as they wrote, it was the words of God breathed out. That's how it works. 
Peter doesn't deny the human element in the process of writing down the Scripture, right? It's the men who spoke. It's the men who wrote. Nor does he deny the divine author, right? Because it was the Spirit who so moved them that they wrote what God intended them to write. And on several occasions, and we read in our Scripture reading today, several times, this was what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. By the Lord, right? Divine authorship through the prophets, human agency. That is what we're talking about, inspiration. And the 66 books of the Bible written by 40 different human authors. But there was only one divine author. The human authors came and left. They're born, they lived, they died, they passed on. But God outlived them all. God knew all of them. Moses, the first writer, was 1500 B.C. John, the last writer, probably died in 95 A.D., some 1500 years. God, the one author of the Bible, outlived them all. The human authors wrote three different languages. The Old Testament is primarily Hebrew. Though there are some chapters, particularly in Daniel and a few others, kind of scattered around just a little verse or so in Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. God is multilingual. He spoke in different languages. He inspired the Scripture to be written down in those languages. And I believe that this one divine author accounts for the remarkable unity that the Scriptures have. It's one story told from many, many different perspectives. And I tell you, it is really quite remarkable that these writers from different eras, cultures, and languages can come to tell the story of God, the redemption of man, in different ways and different facets. Right? The story is told early on in Genesis of, of, of a struggle between a, a serpent and between a, a woman's seed. And, and they're battling it out, but there's going to be a day when the seed of the woman comes... And though the serpent bites him on the heel, he's going to stamp on him on the head and wipe him out. That's the story of redemption. The story of Christ's coming. In Exodus, the picture is given of a Passover lamb. The death and sacrifice of a lamb where you take the blood and you put it on the doorposts of your houses allows the angel of death to come see the blood and pass over the firstborn who is decreed to die. That's the picture of Christ. His blood for us so the angel of death passes over us and doesn't kill us. Doesn't send us to judgment. In numbers, <clears throat> people are smitten by snakes. <clears throat> and uh, God said, look up at this brazen serpent of bronze, a serpent made of bronze. When you look up and you look to that, you'll be healed. Jesus used that in John chapter 3. Just as the, the serpent was lifted up, so also will the Son of Man be lifted up to those to look to Him will be free and forgiven and healed. In Hosea, we see the prophet purchasing his unfaithful wife for a price to redeem her back to be his own. It's exactly the picture of Christ as well. We've restrayed, we've gone away, but Christ Jesus pays the price of Himself to bring us back to be Himself. Time and time again, this story is told over and over and over again and all the biblical writers agree speaks of the unity of the Bible, speaks about the inspiration of the Bible. So why study the whole Bible? Because the Bible is inspired. Why study the whole Bible? Second reason, the whole Bible is profitable. It's profitable. Look there at verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. And secondly, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness. Right? In other words, the whole Bible, all Scripture is profitable to teach us what we need to know and to teach us what we need to do. The larger catechism of the Westminster Confession puts it this way in question number five. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The catechumen responds, the Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. What to believe and what to do. That's exactly what 2 Timothy is talking about here. What to believe, what to know, and what to do. And it's the Scriptures that teach us these things. Right? And again, I want to remind you that Paul is here primarily talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is profitable for our spiritual lives. You want to see how profitable it is? Look at verses 14 and 15. You, Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Here's Timothy from childhood learning the sacred writings. What are the sacred writings? They're the Old Testament. He says, from even a little boy, you were taught these things. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we see that his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois taught him of these things. And realize, Timothy's father was an unbeliever. Acts chapter 16, verse 1 is the flavor we get from that. But you know what? That didn't stop his mom. Didn't stop his grandmother from training him in the Scriptures. I mean, it certainly would have taken a bit of effort. And I'm not even sure they would own their own copy of the Bible. Maybe they couldn't even read. But if they did, and if they could, somehow they found some way to get the Scriptures into this little boy. Maybe they took Timothy to the synagogue where they could rent you know, the Scriptures to read the Scriptures to them. Maybe they had a rabbi come and help teach. Who knows exactly? But I don't think it's too far to suppose that they systematically read through the Bible with Timothy. And so, mothers, if your husbands have failed in my call time and time again to take this Bible... And to say, you know what? We as a family, we are going to read through the Bible this year. And I'm taking a responsibility upon me. I'm the head of the household and we're going to read through this Bible together out loud as a family. Mothers, if your husband has failed to take up that challenge on the example of Lois and Eunice, I say, you know what? You take up the challenge. And you say, you know what? If you don't want to do that and lead that... I'm going to do this with the kids and we're going to read through the whole Bible together and become a hero of the faith like Lois or Eunice with or without your husband. Man, that's a call to all you guys, okay? Pick it up and say, you know what? We're going to make 2006 be about the Bible. We're going to focus. We're going to come together as a family and we're going to focus on the Bible. And maybe, you know, you might find that... um, Read through the whole Bible quite a bit. But you know, I've been encouraged. There have been uh, some families in the church who've taken up that challenge. I think particularly, I'm not sure, Brad Kolak has taken up that challenge. The last three years. Has it been a blessing to your family? Huge blessing. I, I preached recently at the uh, <clears throat> Men's Exposition Conference about just reading through the Bible. 
with the families. And I know several families here who have begun to pick that up since October. So it's been a couple months, and in my talking with these men who have been leading these families, they, they say that the impact that's had on our family has been immense. And after a couple of years, maybe they can give a testimony of just the long-term impact that it's been. And I'm telling you, it is going to be a blessing to you because the whole Bible is profitable for you and your family. In fact, I would believe this. I believe that you parents will do far more in reading the Bible through with your children than anything we can do as a church. I mean, we can try and we certainly will. We'll have children's church. You know, we'll send our kids to Iwana where they memorize lots of things. But I, you can't replace moms and dads reading through the Bible with their children. It just can't be done. So I'm pleading you, Moms and dads, read the Bible with your children and make the biggest impact on them spiritually that you can, that we can as a church. But again, remember that Timothy, Paul's talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. It's the Old Testament Scriptures that led Timothy to faith in Jesus, even though the Old Testament Scriptures never specifically mention his name. I mean, think about how, how can that be done? I think here's how it's done. The Old Testament Scriptures abound in their teaching about God and about His requirement of us. The Old Testament Scriptures demonstrate again and again and again how you know none of us can fully obey God. I mean, even the heroes of the faith, Moses and, and Abraham and, and David, they all were weak and feeble men just like us. And the Scriptures cry out for another to come who would be perfect to redeem Israel. There's some prophecies which explicitly mention about what's going to take place. Others that just kind of allude to the fact that there is going to be this one who's going to come and help to redeem us from our sins. And it's through the Scriptures that you know those things. And the Scriptures have this way of teaching us, of reproving us, correcting us, and training us. Right, let's look at each of these four words. Teaching. Right? If you're going to be a follower of Christ, there's some things you need to know. Right? To love Jesus, you need to know Jesus. Right? This term teaching primarily is talking about knowledge, right? Knowing God and His ways are foundational to everything that we do as His followers. Reproof, right? If you're going to be a Christ follower, there are things in your life that need to change. And this word reproof is talking about the identification of those things you need to change. It may be your doctrine. It may be your conduct. And the Scripture has a wonderful way of simply reading through it to convict us of sin, to confront us, to reprove us. Correction. It's talking about the positive side of reproof. Reproof will expose the sin, but correction will show us where to go, right? Reproof is like this big stop sign that says, Stop! Don't go down this direction. And correction is like the street sign that says, Chicago, that way. Right? There's some times in Scripture that says, This is the way. Walk ye in it. Right? Here it is. Here's the way. You walk in this path. That's correction. And then for training... It's a common word used for discipline. It's an apparent disciplining a child. It's not always pleasant, but it's always good in the end. Right? Listen to the writer of the Hebrews. He says this, All discipline, right, which is translated training in our passage, it's the, it's the correction of the wrong, the chastisement, the punishment, the, the bring us back, the training in righteousness, for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
That's the training that comes. The end is righteous living. And for us this morning, we need to realize that these things take place through all Scripture. It's not simply the New Testament. As we travel through the whole Bible together as a family, surely there will be certain admonitions and applications that the Lord will use to train us in righteousness. In fact, I think about the great example here is Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Maybe you're familiar with the passage. He's just recounting Israel and their history and, and how many of them got led out of Egypt, out of slavery, and yet how God wasn't pleased with many of them but two because... They forsook the Lord. They craved evil things. And Paul writes this. These things, that is Exodus, that is Numbers, happened as an example for us that we should not crave evil things as they craved. Right? The, the Scripture teaches us they craved evil things and God destroyed them in the wilderness. And we ought not to be like them because God will deal with us in the same way. After a few more verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, describing the complaining attitude of the Israelites, Paul writes, these things have happened and I would say have been written down and recorded for us as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the age has come. Right? You see how, un- how complaining they are, how bitter they are, how untrusting and unfaithful they are and God says, don't be like them. Be different. And that's where the, the teaching, the correction, right? There's reproof. Don't be like this. Don't grumble. Don't be idol worship. Don't crave evil things. Right? But go in the right way. The way of righteousness, peace, joy, and hope. Right? And these are the things that we're going to learn through examples of those in the Old Testament that we would never learn if we were bunkered down in one book of the Bible for a long period of time. Because it's all Scripture that's going to help us And I'll tell you, this will especially take place for you who decide to take up the challenge and just say, you know what, 2006 is going to be about reading through the whole Scriptures. And it will be enhanced as you decide, right? Come to flocks because in flocks we're just going to supplement that. You know, and I just say this, it's so easy for us to focus our attention upon the New Testament. It's natural. The New Testament is directly applicable to us, Right? I mean, it was written after Christ was crucified, buried, and raised again. It's often directed straight towards churches and church leaders, right? Which allows us to take the words and apply them directly. That's wonderful. It's easy. We find it really helpful. Application of the Old Testament is admittedly a bit more different. I mean, after all, the Old Testament was written to ancient nations. And many of the things written have no direct application to us at all. Some of them talk about boundaries of the the land of Israel. Like, well, how do we apply that? It's difficult. You just kind of look back and just say God's faithfulness to His promise to fulfill everything and give them exactly what they want. And then by extension, right, the Lord gave them everything they promised. The Lord will give us those things that He has promised. He's faithful. His word does not fail. But make that on top, top of that, there are many commands in the Old Testament that no longer apply to us because they've been fulfilled in Christ, right? You sin, you need to sacrifice this lamb for your sins. Well, we don't do that. To do that would be blasphemous against God because it would revile the cross of Christ. Rather, today, we're not called to sacrifice, we're called to believe on the sacrifice. And so, even some of the things said in the Old Testament, right? Filter it through the cross, you find out that you're not even supposed to obey the commands that were written back then, right? But the way you know that is because you understand the whole story of the Bible and you see how it all gets put together. 
And for this reason, because of the difficulties, it's natural for us to focus on the New Testament. Listen, but we need to realize that in my first point, all the Scripture is inspired. And my second point here, all the Scripture is profitable for a spiritual growth. And you need, you need to understand even this, that to fully understand the New Testament, you need to understand the Old Testament. Do you know that? Because the New Testament is built upon the Old Testament. How many times does the New Testament quote the Old Testament? The New Testament says everything that happened in Jesus was a fulfillment over here. But listen, in order to understand the Old Testament, you need to understand the New Testament also. I mean, that's the error of the Jews. They just think that they can get it by the Old Testament, but they can't because the New Testament interprets it for them. And many times even Paul said about the church, it's a mystery. It's only the New Testament that comes and helps us to understand what the Old Testament's talking about. And you see, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they, they work together to explain God's message. The Old Testament helps provide a foundation for who God is and, and what He's like and what He demands of us. And that's where many today might miss it, just picking up the New Testament having a different view of God than what the Old Testament gives us a view of God. But when we understand God and His holiness and our sinfulness and His judgment and His wrath upon us, right? It comes, now we understand where Christ is. But if we have a wrong picture of God, He's just a loving God whose job it is to forgive us our sins, then we'll miss the message of the New Testament. And we need to understand, right? The New Testament to understand the Old, the Old to understand the New. They fit together. To understand the Old Testament, you need the New. To understand the New, you need the Old. They help to explain one another. And I think they help to explain one another in this sense that the three most important rules for Bible interpretation, I'm not sure you know them or not. First rule is context. The second rule is context. The third rule is, help me now, is what? Context. In other words, when you seek to interpret a passage of Scripture, the most important thing to take into account is the context of the passage in which it lies. But there are layers to this context. There is a a close context, right? The verse before and the verse after. The paragraph before, the paragraph after. Maybe the whole chapter. Or maybe even the whole book you're looking at has a context. But you know what? The greatest overall context is the context of the whole Bible. And there's sometimes you can read a verse and you need to take into account the whole context of the Bible to understand that verse. Right? And it's easy in our Bible interpretation to miss the overall purposes of what's being accomplished in a particular text. Right? But if we work through the whole Bible, which is inspired and profitable for us, it's going to help put the whole Scripture together for us. In fact, one of the things I want to do is, is show you the different strands that, that come together in the Bible so it all helps you. Helps come to life maybe in a greater way than ever before. Why preach through the Bible? It's inspired. It's profitable. And thirdly, verse 17, the whole Bible is capable. It's capable. Look what it says there in verse 17, right? That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, this verse here is a great verse to show you how, how to understand the New Testament A grasp of the Old Testament is very helpful. Upon first reading of this passage, we might simply say that Paul is just saying that the effect of Scripture upon us all is that we're all trained by the Scripture for good works. And that's true, but it's true by extension. Here's what I mean. Paul says this, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 
If you were grounded in the Old Testament and you heard that phrase, man of God, you said, you know what? I've heard that phrase before. It's used often in the Old Testament. And do you know who it's used of? Always, without exception, it's always used of some great prophet of God. Someone who speaks for God. For instance, it's used of Moses. Moses is called the man of God. Right? The man come from God. Right? God's man. God's messenger. The one who speaks. It's used of Samuel, the prophet who speaks for God. It's used of Elisha and Elijah. It's used of David, the man of God. It's used of other lesser known prophets like Shemaiah and Igdalia. It's, it's, it's used of several other prophets who aren't even named. Oh, let's call the man of God. Or the man of God has come and told us a message from God. Every single time the phrase man of God is used, it's always used as someone speaking on behalf of God. Never is the title in the Old Testament used to describe a simple person in the congregation. Like, oh, they're a godly man. Man of God is not used in that context. And with that background of the Old Testament, you see and understand that Paul's probably talking about here, the Scripture is profitable. The Scripture is inspired so that the man of God, the one who speaks for God, particularly you, Timothy, the pastor of this congregation at Ephesus, that you can be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's what it's talking about. The only other time the New Testament uses this phrase, the man of God, is used in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. So in light of the false doctrine, these false preachers says, but you, man of God, don't follow those ways. You follow the right ways and you fight for the faith. And so it's when you read through the Bible that you hear these phrases, right? The man of God, the man of God, the man of God. And then you come across this passage and say, oh, the Scriptures are talking about training the pastor to be equipped for every good work. That's what it's talking about. But then if the pastor is equipped by the Scriptures, by all Scripture, does that equip other people as well? Does Scripture do that? Absolutely, of course it does. Right? But that is by application and by extension of verse 17, because verse 17 says the training manual for a pastor in ministry is all Scripture. And I've been reminded again afresh this week I don't need this seminar, I don't need that seminar, I don't need this conference or that book, or this CD or that. Those are helpful, and those are teachers, and those guys, but they are helpful to the extent that they direct me as a pastor to my training manual. If this is sufficient for me, it is certainly sufficient for you as well. It says all Scripture is capable, it's adequate training the man of God to be equipped for every good work. And so all Scripture includes Genesis, right? All Scripture speaks and teaches us. And we learn from Genesis of how God is a sovereign creator. And Adam's sin, the entire human race, plunged into sin. But by God's grace, He promised of a Redeemer that would come. And He chose Abraham through whom to bring this Redeemer. Exodus is part of all Scripture, right? It teaches us that God's a saving God who will deliver His people from their distress in accordance with His promises. Leviticus it's part of all Scripture that teaches us what God is, is like. He is holy, and you shall be holy, for I am holy, and we fail to live in accordance with God's law. We need to have sacrifices to appease God's wrath. All Scripture includes numbers, which teaches how, how rebellious we can be. 
The children of Israel witnessed amazing displays of God's power and might, and yet they still were ungrateful and unfaithful. All Scripture includes Deuteronomy, which is a great exposition of what it means to love and follow God and the blessings or cursings that come as a result of the actions we choose. All Scripture includes Joshua, which teaches us the ways to have godly success. It's to meditate upon God's Word and to trust it and obey it. And then you'll make your way prosperous and then you'll have success. All Scripture includes Judges, which teaches how, how great a delivering God is throughout all generations there of Israel. He was always raising up people, raising up people to deliver them. All Scripture includes Ruth which gives insight into how a kinsman can redeem another kinsman, right? How one can buy another back and take them into his own household. All Scripture includes 1 Samuel, which puts forth mighty King Saul, who had all the worldly advantages, height, stature, handsomeness. He was tall, dark, and handsome, and yet without a heart for God, his reign was futile. All Scripture includes 2 Samuel, which talks about King David, the man after God's own heart. And yet it also teaches us that even men after God's own heart can sin and fall. And yet God graciously forgive them and restore them. Second Samuel talking about David, we find that this messianic blessing is, is through Abraham, but now particularly comes to the line of David. We learn these things, right? All Scripture includes 1 Kings, tells us of the life of Solomon, the wisest man ever to walk the planet. And yet his following after the world caused his life to end in disaster. These things are profitable for a pastor. These things are capable of training a pastor to lead a congregation and they are capable of leading you in a life of righteousness as well. First Kings tells us of the disaster that took place and the division of the people, right? Division of Israel and the two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south, have long-lasting effects. All Scripture includes First and Second Chronicles contain many historical workings of God Right, to show that our faith is historical. Genealogies, right? Which show that this person lived and this person lived and this person lived and this person lived and brought it all the way down the lineage to the promise of Christ. Our faith is historical. It's not a myth. That's what First Chronicles teaches us. All Scripture includes Ezra and Nehemiah which tell us of God's incredible working among the people of God to bring them back in the land after exile to Babylon. That's faithfulness to His people. Though they were sinful and rebellious, Right? Idol worshippers, they went off. God preserved a remnant and brought them back. All Scripture includes Esther and Job, which teach us of God's amazing sovereignty to turn very, very difficult and painful circumstances into opportunities that His name might be praised among the nations. All Scripture includes the Psalms, which have a big range of emotions of, of God's people. On the one hand, the psalmist is just excited with joy of worshipping Him. And on the other hand, you've got a a despondent and downcast psalmist is saying, Oh soul, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And a whole range of emotions in between to communicate to us what it means to walk with God. All Scripture includes the Proverbs, gives great wisdom for living, written by the wisest man ever to live, ever who will live. All Scripture includes Ecclesiastes, in the Song of Solomon, which deal with the pleasures of life, when the pleasures of marriage, and when is the pleasure of this world? Money, sex, pursuit, whatever. And just the goodness or badness of those pleasures and seeking after them. The vanity of pursuing just things of this world. 
All Scripture includes prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel who give us one simple message. You can summarize all of these prophets by the message, Repent! But we commented as we read through these prophets, I'm not sure if you remember, Vaughn, just, you know what? They just say the same thing again and again and again and again and again in different, different ways. They're, some writers are very short. <laughs> Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they go on and on and on and on and on and on. Gives you a little bit of an importance about how important it is to repent. As a pastor, to speak with people about all different types of illustrations, right? To get back to the main message to repent. All Scripture includes Daniel which teaches of God's sovereign rule over the universe and anticipates this everlasting kingdom that He's going to bring in. All Scripture includes Hosea, teaches of God's abounding love to a disobedient people. Even people who aren't His people will be His people. First Peter 2 picks up that theme. All Scripture includes Joel, Amos, and Obadiah, which speak forth of God's incredible judgment that's coming to disobedient nations. It's coming strong and hard because they've disobeyed. Right? It's in Joel that the locusts come. And what, what the one kind of locust leaves, another kind of locust is going to take away. And what that locust leaves, another seer's locust is going to come. And come and come and come and come and destroy them. All Scripture includes Jonah. Teach of God's kindness to an abundantly wicked people who repent. All Scripture includes Nahum and Habakkuk, which speaks about God's judgment upon Assyria. And upon Judah. All Scripture includes Zephaniah and Haggai who both describe God's work in restoring His people and rebuilding Jerusalem. All Scripture includes Zechariah which anticipates the coming of Messiah as does Malachi as well as he predicted the coming of Elijah who was John the Baptist before Jesus would come. And all of that is profitable and capable to train pastors to walk in every good work, and thus, clearly by extension, all the Scripture is capable of equipping all of us for every good work as well. And I've not even said anything about the New Testament yet, but there are three letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, explicitly written to pastors on how to lead and shepherd the church. And the Gospels and Acts and all the epistles just teach us of the wondrous news of Christ and that great message. And it's all capable of changing in us and teaching us, equipping us for every good work. And I'm saying this, that all Scripture will have an effect upon your life. And so as we go through and teach this year through all Scripture, it's going to have an effect upon your life. It's very capable of doing so, and all Scripture is profitable. And I simply ask you this. In 2006, are you going to take the opportunity, take up the challenge, and be involved wholeheartedly? Say, you know, I'm going to make 2006 for me, the year of the Bible, where I just say, you know what? I'm going to just try this survey summary theme, and I'm going to be devoted to the reading. And I say, listen, you might devote yourself today, and it might get hard. If, If ever you fall behind... Skip ahead and just pick up afresh and do it again and again. And you take up that challenge for yourself because all Scripture is profitable for you. It's capable of working effect in your life. Are you going to do that as a family? Are you going to be reading through as a family together so that when you come on Sunday morning, you've already read the text? A week's reading would take me almost two hours to stand up here and say, okay, well, let's, my text this morning is Genesis 4 through 27. Let me just read it for you. 
take two hours to read that. The rate I read out loud here, that's how long it takes. But if you read it before, which I'm trusting you have, you have some things and some background in your hearts and your minds to become prepared. Right? And are you going to attend a flock right, where these things are merely reinforced and, and helped and, and you, others going to use to press upon your life for training in righteousness? Well, that's my heart. Are you going to be involved? I, I want to just close my message this morning. This is our last Sunday before Christmas. Really reflect upon Christmas because we think about Christmas, it's on our minds. And what Christmas is about is about pulling together all of the Scripture to see what is the most important and what's the central story. So I want to illustrate everything I'm talking about, about reading through the whole Bible to show you how Christmas is just like that. It pulls together things in the Old Testament and New Testament. And think about this. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that Messiah would come from the line of Judah. Genesis prophesied it, anticipated it, that He would come out of the Lion of Judah. And more specifically, by the time we get to 2 Samuel, it's going to come from the tribe of David, come from David's family. Messiah is going to come. And it says more particularly even that He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was in David's territory. David was a Bethlehemite, right? From Bethlehem, a little bit south of Jerusalem. Instead of all the territories there, it's going to be this little town there of Bethlehem where the Messiah is going to come and be born. Micah told us that. And the Messiah, when He comes, is going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14 tells us that. Is that there's going to be this woman, never known a man, conceived of by the Holy Spirit, is going to bring forth a child. And this child is going to be Emmanuel. It's going to be Im, with, Anu, us, El, God, Emmanuel, with us, God. It's going to be God dwelling among us. I see the importance of the virgin birth prophesied in Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 9 that it's going to be a child born to us. It's going to be this great king ruler. Daniel tells us about when this child is going to be born. Daniel 9 talks about how Messiah would come 483 years after the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Right? And so you think about, well, it's going to be 483 years He's going to be fully grown then. So you go maybe about 450 years. We didn't know exactly when, but that's when Messiah would be born so that He could come in and be cut off. They happened all exactly according to plan. All these things in the Old Testament converging all, boom, at the manger in Bethlehem. And the story even continues on, right? Even as Andy sang, right? He was born to die. Right? Prophecies even predicted that he was going to go and die. He was going to be the servant who suffered. Isaiah talks a lot about that. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. Jesus said that. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life. I'm going to suffer as a servant for you. Isaiah 61 prophesies how the Spirit is going to be upon Him. He's going to do wondrous things, giving sight to the blind. Speech to the dumb. Cleanse lepers. And that's exactly what took place with Jesus. Jesus preached in Luke chapter 4 about how the Spirit did come upon Him and how these miraculous things did take place through His ministry, just like the Old Testament prophesied. The Old Testament prophesied that He would ride into Jerusalem. Zechariah 9.9 says that. He's going to ride in your king. Behold, here comes your king riding in on a donkey. And that's exactly what He did on Palm Sunday. 
Psalm 22 predicted that Jesus would be crucified. How many times? My God, my God, why hast you forsaken me? He cried upon the cross. That was Psalm 22, verse 1. And so many things there in Psalm 22. It's called the crucifixion psalm. Anticipating what was going to happen with the Messiah. Psalm 16 explained how Jesus would be raised from the dead. Right? I won't allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That is Jesus. I'm not going to allow Him to undergo decay. I'm going to raise Him up so His flesh never decays. Prophesied, Old Testament, coming to fulfillment. You know, and then all these pictures about being the Passover lamb, the, the brazen serpent being lifted up, the, the redeemed, you know, the Hosea who loves. All these pictures come together and are fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus, even the night when He's betrayed, right? He took bread and He said, what? This is the new covenant. The new covenant was prophesied in Jeremiah of a time when, when God would relate to His people differently, put in them a new heart rather than a heart of, of stone, a heart of flesh that would be soft and moldable. There would be a new priesthood. Hebrews 8 talks about that. This Hebrews, this new change of priesthood. Psalm 110 is anticipating Jesus coming to be along the order of Melchizedek. And this new priesthood. And a new priesthood requires a change of law. We're now under the law of the Gospel of Christ. A new kingdom would come in. Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom was promised in 2 Samuel 7 to be just this, this everlasting kingdom. Upon your throne, David, I will set my king upon it and he will reign forever. Fulfilled in Jesus. Salvation to the Gentiles came through Christ. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. It's the Old Testament anticipating and the New Testament coming to, to grips with that in the, in the birth of Christ and then in His life and we can trust on followers. That's the story of the Bible. It's a story of Jesus predicted, redeeming us and showing us how to live and that those who believe will be with Him forever. So as you think about this Christmas season, I would encourage you to think about the cross when you think about the manger. Right? To think about where it's all ended. But think also about about the past. Think about that it's good news that we have, right? Isaiah chapter 40 says, get yourself up on a mountain and proclaim, it's good news. The angels proclaim good news of a great joy because our Savior's come, what's been prophesied, and there is great joy and great hope for us in the future, worshiping Him forever. Well, I hope that just whets your appetite. I, I, I preached this message this morning as an introduction to the whole study of the Bible because I know many of you will be gone next week different places for Christmas and I just wanted to put this in right before we do that. Next week, we'll look at this Christmas a little bit more. Christmas Eve, of course, and then Christmas Day. Thinking more about the, the, the baby born who's God with us. And then we'll start January 1, Genesis 1-3. through 3. And my prayer and my hope and my desire is that all of us might be on board and just say, let's do this Bible thing in 2006 before we get back into some detailed exposition. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I would pray blessings upon the new year. I pray for 2006 that many families would be impacted as they see the profitability of reading through the Scripture together and discussing it and talking about it and praying over it and learning about it Sunday mornings and learning about it in their families and learning about it in the flocks and making everything focus around there. And So even now I pray even months from now, when we're deep in the recesses of Second Samuel, and we've gone through much of the Old Testament already, that people might be so stirred in their hearts 
God, to, to see how good this is of the, the treasures that you have given to us in your word, predicting and telling of the story of what took place. I, I think of those who I've spoken to who have constantly read through the scriptures and how excited they are for this. I know how excited and enthused I am. I would pray for those who are skeptical even now that they might just trust me and just say, let's do this. And God, may it encourage our hearts. Because we know that all Scripture is inspired and all Scripture is profitable for us. And all Scripture is capable of transforming us and changing us and training us for every work of service. So God would pray that you would do that in our hearts in 2006. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.